My dear brethren of the priesthood, though we are from many nations, we are, as Paul said, of one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But the strength of the faith within each of us is developed individually and not as a group. For example, think of the faith of a boy about eight years of age who is facing an emergency operation for acute appendicitis. As he lay on the operating table, he looked up at the surgeon and said, Doctor, before you begin to operate, will you pray for me? The surgeon looked at the boy in amazement and said, Why, I can't pray for you. Then the little fellow said, If you won't pray for me, please wait while I pray for myself. There on the operating table, the boy got on his knees, folded his hands, and began to pray. He said, Heavenly Father, I am only a little orphan boy. I am awful sick, and these doctors are going to operate. Will you please help them that they will do it right? Heavenly Father, if you will make me well, I will be a good boy. Then he added, Thank you for making me well. He then laid it on his back, looked up at the tear-filled eyes of the doctors and nurses, and said, Now I am ready. His physical recovery was complete, and his spiritual power was developing. You, brethren, are older and have had the priesthood conferred upon you. Your priesthood quorums provide opportunities for friendship, service, and learning. But the responsibility to develop power in the priesthood is personal. Only as an individual can you develop a firm faith in God and a passion for personal prayer. Only as an individual can you keep the commandments of God. Only as an individual can you repent. Only as an individual can you qualify for the ordinances of salvation and exaltation. And when your wife is sealed to you, her power and potential will increase yours. I belong to a wonderful priesthood quorum. We enjoy a precious brotherhood. We pray together. We serve together. We teach, love, and sustain one another. The Twelve come from different backgrounds—business, education, law, and science. But not one was called to serve because of that background. In fact, all men called to positions of priesthood responsibility are chosen because of who they are and who they can become. Throughout life, you will have a wide variety of duties and responsibilities. Many of these are temporary and will be relinquished upon your release. You probably won't object to your release from a call to pull weeds at the welfare farm. But you never will be released from responsibilities related to your personal and family development. When ordained to an office in the priesthood, you are granted authority. But power comes from exercising that authority in righteousness. 
From the president of the church to the newest deacon, we are responsible to the Lord. We are to be true and faithful and live by every principle and doctrine that He has given to us. We cannot compromise a revelation or a commandment committed to our charge. He trusts us to build up the kingdom of God and to establish His righteousness. One day, each of us will give an account to the Lord. This awareness was evident in a serious conversation I had years ago with a dear friend facing the end of his mortal life. I asked him if he was ready to die. I'll never forget his answer. With courage and conviction, he said, My life is ready for inspection. When the Prophet Joseph Smith faced death, he said, I am going like a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer's morning. I have a conscience void of offense towards God and towards all men. Now is the time to prepare for your own ultimate interview. You might ask yourself, Do I pay tithing with a willing heart? Do I obey the word of wisdom? Is my language free from obscenities and swearing? Am I morally righteous? Am I truly grateful for the Atonement that makes my resurrection a reality and eternal life a possibility? Do I honor temple covenants that seal loved ones to me forever? If you can honestly say yes, you are developing power in the priesthood. The gift of the Holy Ghost can add to that power. Scriptures tell of people who had received the Holy Ghost but did not know it. Don't let that happen to you. Cultivate that gift to qualify for this promise from God. Speak the thoughts that I shall put into your hearts, and you shall not be confounded before men, for it shall be given you in the very hour, yea, in the very moment, what ye shall say. Priesthood authority has existed in many dispensations, such as those of Adam, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Moses, the Meridian of Time, the Jaredites, the Nephites, and others. All previous dispensations were limited in time, as each ended in apostasy. They were also limited to small segments of planet Earth. In contrast, in contrast our dispensation, the dispensation of the fullness of times, will not be limited in time or in place. Globally, it will host a whole, complete, and perfect union welding together dispensations, keys, powers, and glories from the days of Adam even to the present time. The Aaronic Priesthood was restored May 15, 1829, by John the Baptist. The Melchizedek Priesthood was restored shortly thereafter by Peter, James, and John. Other heavenly messengers conveyed specific keys of the priesthood. Moroni held keys of the Book of Mormon. Moses brought keys of the gathering of Israel and the leading of the Ten Tribes. Elias conveyed keys of the restoration of all things, including the Abrahamic Covenant. 
and Elijah conferred keys of the sealing authority. You know something about keys. In your pocket, there might be a key to your home or car. Priesthood keys, on the other hand, are intangible and invisible. They switch on the authority of the priesthood. Some keys even convey power to bind in heaven as well as on earth. Joseph Smith conferred priesthood keys upon all of the Twelve. Those keys have been transferred to successive leaders. Today, President Gordon B. Hinckley holds authority for every restored key held by all those who have received a dispensation at any time from the beginning of the creation. With this doctrinal history in mind, it is clear that one cannot buy the priesthood. Scripture declares that no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. To bear the priesthood means you have a personal responsibility to magnify your calling. Let each opportunity to serve help to develop your power in the priesthood. In your personal grooming, follow the example of the living prophets. Doing so gives silent expression that you truly comprehend the importance of the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. When you, brethren, have an opportunity to exercise the Melchizedek priesthood, ponder what you are to do. When you lay hands upon the head of another, you are not offering a prayer, which of course requires no authority. You are authorized to set apart, to ordain, to bless, and to speak in the name of the Lord. Remember His promises. Whomsoever you bless, I will bless, and I will impart unto you of my Spirit. And then shall ye know all things pertaining unto things of righteousness in faith, believing in me, and that you shall receive. To magnify your callings in the Aaronic priesthood, you young men, should shape your personal efforts toward five personal objectives. To gain a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, be worthy of missionary service. Keep yourself morally clean and qualified to enter the holy temple. Pursue your personal education. Uphold Church standards and be worthy of your future companion. How can you remember those five objectives? It's easy. Look at your hand. Let your pointer finger Point to the scriptures. From them, gain a better knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then live in accord with His teachings. Let your middle finger remind you to be worthy of missionary service. Let your ring finger remind you of marriage, endowment, sealing, and blessings of the temple. Let your end finger remind you that pursuit of an education is a religious responsibility. 
Let your thumb go up, reminding you to uphold the standards of the Church and be worthy of your eternal companion. The realization of these five objectives will bless your lives. You bearers of the Melchizedek priesthood should qualify for the highest degree of celestial glory. In order to obtain it, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. And if he does not, he cannot obtain it. That covenant is honored when you honor your wife. A husband's foremost priority should be the care of his wife. Be true to her. Don't ever allow your eyes to gaze upon pornography or let your language be lewd. The very choices made by reason of agency limit one's agency in the future. You cannot exercise agency and escape accountability and responsibility for each choice. Never forget that the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. This power cannot be controlled or handled except upon the principles of righteousness. If we abuse that power to cover our sins, to gratify our pride, to pursue vain ambition, or to control others in any degree of unrighteousness, we lose both the authority and the power of the priesthood. Brethren, serve with gentleness, long-suffering, kindness, meekness, love unfeigned, pure knowledge, and charity toward all. Then the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon your soul as the dews from heaven. Please know of our love and gratitude for each of you. We thank you for your faith, your service, and your sustaining strength. May you, your loved ones, and your posterity be blessed by your righteous pursuit of power in the priesthood. God lives. Jesus is the Christ. He directs His Church through His prophets and apostles. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brethren, it's a humbling experience to stand before you this evening and to realize that beyond the imposing audience in this, the conference center, many hundreds of thousands of priesthood bearers are similarly assembled throughout the world. While contemplating the responsibility to speak to you, I recall the definition of priesthood authority declared by President Stephen L. Richards. Said he, the priesthood is usually simply defined as the power of God delegated to man. This definition, I think, is accurate, but for practical purposes, I like to define the priesthood in terms of service and I frequently call it the perfect plan of service." Close quote. Whether we hold the office of a deacon in the Aaronic priesthood or that of an elder in the Melchizedek priesthood, we are duty-bound by the Lord's revelation found in the 107th section of the Doctrine and Covenants 
Verse 99, Wherefore now let every man learn his duty, and to act in the office in which he is appointed in all diligence. As our youngest son, Clark, was approaching his twelfth birthday, he and I were leaving the Church Administration Building when President Harold B. Lee approached and greeted us. I mentioned that Clark would soon be twelve, whereupon President Lee turned to him and asked, What happens to you when you turn twelve? This was one of those times when a father prays <laughs> that a son will be inspired to give a proper response. Clark, without hesitation, said to President Lee, I will be ordained a deacon. The answer was the one President Lee had sought. He then counseled our son, Remember, it is a great blessing to hold the priesthood. When I was a boy, I looked forward to passing the sacrament to the ward members. We deacons were trained as to our duties. One of the men in our ward, Lewis, suffered from palsy. His head and hands shook so violently that he could not by himself partake of the sacrament. Each deacon knew that his duty in serving Lewis was to hold the bread to his lips so that he might partake and to similarly place the cup of water to his mouth with one hand while steadying his head with the other, the tray being held by another deacon while doing so. Always Lewis would say, Thank you. It was 40 years ago this conference time when President David O. McKay called me to serve as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. At the first meeting of the Presidency in Twelve, which I attended, where the sacrament was served, President McKay announced, Before we partake of the sacrament, I would like to ask our newest member of this body, Brother Monson, if he would instruct the First Presidency and Twelve on the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was then that I gained a true understanding of the old adage, When the time for decision arrives, the time for preparation is past. It was also the time to remember the counsel found in 1 Peter. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. I began my remarks by referring to a letter which I had received from one of the servicemen from our ward who was serving on the front lines in Korea during that sometimes forgotten war. The writer told how amidst the shelling on Sunday morning, several in his platoon partook of the bread and then the water, both served from a helmet. Each remembered the significance of the blessing pronounced on the sacred emblems and his individual responsibility to keep the commandments of the Lord and to follow the Lord's example of service to others. The memory of that particular experience with the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve has not dimmed in the intervening forty years. To those who have been absent from home and family, whether in the military, on missions, 
or for other purposes. The holiday season brings forth a yearning, even a longing, to be together with loved ones. To hear the laughter of children, to witness the expression of love by parents, and to feel the embrace of brothers and sisters provides a preview of heaven and the eternal joy to be found there. One December evening, while waiting to board a plane en route to the United States, Sister Monson and I were standing in the stifling heat and humidity of Singapore when over the airport loudspeaking system came a familiar, lilting melody with Bing Crosby singing the words, I'll be home for Christmas. You can plan on me. Please have snow and mistletoe and presents on the tree. Christmas Eve will find me where the love light gleams. I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. The First Presidency has long emphasized the statement, the home is the basis of a righteous life, and no other instrumentality can take its place or fulfill its essential functions. There are those families comprised of mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, who have, through thoughtless comment, isolated themselves from one another. An account of how such a tragedy was narrowly averted occurred many years ago in the life of a young man who, for purposes of privacy, I shall call Jack. Throughout Jack's life, he and his father had many serious arguments. One day when he was 17, they had a particularly violent one. Jack said to his father, This is the straw that breaks the camel's back. I'm leaving home, and I shall never return. So saying, he went to the house and packed his bag. His mother begged him to stay. He was too angry to listen. He left her crying at the doorway. Leaving the yard, he was about to pass through the gate when he heard his father call to him, Jack, I know that a large share of the blame for your leaving rests with me. For this I am truly sorry. I want you to know that if you should ever wish to return home, you'll always be welcome, and I'll try to be a better father to you. I want you to know that I'll always love you. Jack said nothing. I went to the bus station and bought a ticket to a distant point. As he sat on the bus watching the miles go by, he commenced to think about the words of his father. He began to realize how much love it had required for him to do what he had done. Dad had apologized. He had invited him back and left the words ringing in the summer air, I love you. It was then that Jack realized that the next move was up to him. He knew the only way he could ever find peace with himself was to demonstrate to his father the same kind of maturity, goodness, and love that Dad had shown toward him. Jack got off the bus. He bought a return ticket and went back. He arrived shortly after midnight, entered the house, 
turned on the light. There in the rocking chair sat his father, his head in his hands. As he looked up and saw Jack, he rose from the chair, and they rushed into each other's arms. Jack often said, Those last years that I was home were among the happiest of my life. We could say that here was a boy who overnight became a man. Here was a father who, suppressing passion and bridling pride, rescued his son before he became one of that vast lost battalion resulting from fractured families and shattered homes. Love was the binding band, the healing balm. Love so often felt, so seldom expressed. From Mount Sinai, there thunders in our ears, Honor thy father and thy mother. And later from the Lord, the injunction, Live together in love. Brethren, ours is the responsibility, yes, even the solemn duty, to reach out to those who have slipped into inactivity or strayed from the family circle. Recall with me the beautiful words of the Lord's Revelation from Section 18 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Remember, the worth of souls is great in the sight of God. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring Sabbath be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And now if your joy will be great with one soul that you brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. As presidencies of Aaronic priesthood quorums, as advisors to these quorums, we can, with the Lord's help, reach out and rescue those for whom we have responsibility. Young men, with a smile on your face and determination in your heart, you can take arm in arm a less active boy and together come to priesthood meeting and learn of the Lord and what He has prepared for you to do. You're entitled to His divine help, for He has promised you, I will go before your face, I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Brethren of the Melchizedek Priesthood, you have the same sacred charge and obligation as pertains to your duties to other men and to their families. And you have the same promise of the Lord to attend your efforts. As you succeed, you will be answering a mother's prayer, the tender though unexpressed feelings of children's hearts, and your names will forever be honored by those whom you reach out and help. Let me share with you a rather private but joyful example from my own experience. As a bishop, I worried about any members who were inactive, not attending, not serving. Such was my thought one day as I drove down the street where Ben and Emily Fulmer lived. 
aches and pains of advancing years cause them to withdraw from activity to the shelter of their home, isolated, detached, shut out from the mainstream of daily life and association. Ben and Emily had not been in our sacrament meeting for many years. Ben, a former bishop, would sit constantly in his front room reading and memorizing the New Testament. I was en route from my uptown sales office to our plant on Industrial Road. For some reason, I had driven down First West, a street which I never had traveled before, to reach the destination of our plant. Then I felt the unmistakable prompting to park my car and visit Ben and Emily. Even though I was on my way to a meeting, I did not heed the impression at first, but drove on for two more blocks. However, when the impression came again, I returned to their home. It was a sunny weekday afternoon. I approached the door to their home and knocked. I heard the tiny fox terrier dog bark at my approach. Little dogs always bark. <laughs> Emily welcomed me in. Upon seeing me, she exclaimed, All day long, I've waited for my phone to ring. It's been silent. I hoped the postman would deliver a letter. He brought only bills. Bishop, how did you know today is my birthday? I answered, God knows, Emily, <laughs> for he loves you. In the quiet of their living room, I said to Ben and Emily, I really don't know why I was directed here today, but I was. Our Heavenly Father knows. He knows. Let's kneel in prayer and ask him why. They were a little older than I, but I helped Ben to his knees and Emily knelt down, as did I. And the answer came. As we arose from our knees, I said to Brother Fulmer, Ben, would you come to priesthood meeting when we meet with all the priesthood and relate to our ironic priesthood boys the story you once told me when I was a boy, how you and a group of boys were en route to the Jordan River to swim one Sunday? But you felt the Spirit direct you to attend Sunday school, and you did. One of the boys who failed to respond to that Spirit drowned that Sunday. Our boys would like to hear your testimony. I'll do it, he responded. I then said to Sister Fulmer, Emily, I know you have a beautiful voice. My mother has told me so. Our ward conference is a few weeks away and our choir will sing. Would you join the choir and attend our ward conference and perhaps sing a solo? What will the number be, she inquired. I don't know, I said, but I'd like you to sing it. That's what drives choristers crazy, brethren. <laughs> Nevertheless, she sang and he spoke to the erotic priesthood. Hearts were gladdened. By the return to activity of Ben and Emily, they rarely missed a sacrament meeting from that day forward. The language of the Spirit had been spoken. It had been heard. It had been understood. Hearts were touched. 
and souls saved. Ben and Emily Fulmer had come home. One of the longest-running musicals in history is Les Miserables. The story is set in the period of the French Revolution. The principal character in the musical is Jean Valjean. In his heartfelt concern for the young man Marius, who is going off to battle, he expresses in song a sincere prayer. God on high, hear my prayer. In my need, you have always been there. He is young. He's afraid. Let him rest. Heaven blessed, bring him home. Bring him peace. Bring him joy. He is young. He's only a boy. You can take. You can give. Let him be. Let him live. If I die, let me die. Let him live. Bring him home. Brethren, as we go forward, as bearers of the priesthood of God, learning our duty, and then reaching out to our brethren who stand in need of our help, let us look upward to our Heavenly Father, who is the Father of us all. We may not hear His voice, but we will remember His salutation. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And within our hearts, we will recognize his unspoken plea, bring him home. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brethren of the priesthood of God all over the world, we extend to each of you our love and greetings wherever you are. Picture with me a little six-year-old orphan girl traveling across the plains of America. Her name is Elsie Ann. Her mother died when she was two. Her father remarried, and so for a time she had a stepmother. Then her father died at winter quarters when she was five. Her stepmother remarried and moved away, leaving this little orphan behind with Peter and Selena Robinson, who were related to her stepmother. Elsie Ann left winter quarters with the Robinsons in July of 1849 to come west. As she watched Selina care for her 10-month-old baby girl, she no doubt ate for the love of her own mother. Sometimes she would even ask, where is my mother? My heart goes out to this little girl when I think of her facing her uncertain future with no blood relatives to comfort and help her. Elsie Ann was my great-grandmother, and only recently did we find out who her mother really was. For years we thought Elsie Ann was Jane Robinson's daughter. Careful research discovered her true parentage, and after all these years, Elsie Ann has now been sealed to her father, John Akerley, and her mother, Mary Moore. My grandparents have had a great influence on my life. Even though they have been dead for many years, I still feel their confirming love. 
One grandfather, James Akerley Faust, has died before I was born. I knew him only through the stories my grandmother and parents told about him. However, I feel a strong kinship with him because I am part of what he was. Among other things, he was a cowboy, a rancher, and a postmaster in a small town in central Utah. On one occasion, Grandfather took a trip in the winter to Idaho, where he met an acquaintance who had fallen on hard times. It was cold. Grandfather's friend had no coat. Grandfather took off his coat and gave it to him. This evening, I would encourage you young men to begin to unlock the knowledge of who you really are by learning more about your forebears. Alex Haley, author of the book Roots, said, In all of us there is a hunger, bone marrow deep, to know our heritage, to know who we are and where we have come from. Without this enriching knowledge there is a hollow yearning. No matter what our attainments in life, there is still a vacuum, an emptiness, and the most disquieting loneliness. We can have exciting experiences as we learn about our vibrant, dynamic ancestors. They were very real living people with problems, hopes, and dreams like we have today. In many ways, each of us is the sum total of what our ancestors were. The virtues they had may be our virtues, their strengths our strengths, and in a way their challenges could be our challenges. Some of their traits may be our traits. I noticed a while ago that one of my great-grandsons, a toddler, seemed to have an interesting kind of walk. My wife said, he walks just like you do. Now I wonder from whom I inherited this characteristic. It is a joy to become acquainted with our forebears who died long ago. Each of us has a fascinating family history. Finding your ancestors can be one of the most interesting puzzles you young men can work on. Each of us has to begin this work somewhere, and it can be done by young or old. This summer, 170 children of the Larty Bjorski Ghana Stake worked on their four-generation family trees during a two-hour program, with more than 74 completing their, and displaying their trees. As President Boyd K. Packer has said, if you don't know where to start, start with yourself. If you don't know what records to get and how to get them, Start with what you have. You will learn about the phenomenon that is you. It can be more fascinating than any movie you will see or any computer game you might play. You will need to find out who your grandparents and great-grandparents were and what temple work has been done for them. If you don't know how to get this information, ask people in your ward who do know how. Ask the living members of your family what they know about your extended family. Look at records close at hand, such as family Bibles, to find out more details about forebears. 
then you can reach out to other sources, such as vital records, church records, census records, and military records. If you have access to a computer, you can put your computer skills to work and log on to the church's FamilySearch.org website. Family history has become a sophisticated, sophisticated activity where computers provide immense resources to your search. You can easily access a vast collection of family history records using the Internet on your home computer or your nearest family history center. Family history centers are now available in 88 countries. They are part of an unequaled record-keeping system that helps preserve the heritage of families all over the world. In the Family History Library in Salt Lake City, patrons are constantly corresponding and submitting information about their family histories. One person wrote, We are sending you five children in a separate envelope. The great work of providing the saving ordinances for our kindred dead is a vital part of the threefold mission of the Church. We do this for a purpose, which is to redeem our dead ancestors. Temple work is essential for both us and our kindred dead who are waiting for these saving ordinances to be done for them. It is essential because we cannot be made perfect Neither can they without us be made perfect. They need the saving ordinances, and we need to be sealed to them. For this reason, it is important that we trace our family history lines so that no one is left out. Searching our kindred debt isn't just a hobby. It is a fundamental responsibility for all members of the Church. We believe that life continues after death and that all will be resurrected. We believe that families may continue in the next life if they have kept the special covenants made in one of the sacred temples under the authority of God. We believe that our deceased ancestors can also be eternally united with their families when we make covenants in their behalf in the temples. Our deceased forebears may accept these covenants if they choose to do so in the spirit world. The great vicarious work for our kindred dead in our temples demonstrates both the justice and the fairness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Prophet Joseph Smith explained the terrible dilemma which would face God's children without temple work for our dead. Said he, One dies and is buried, never having heard the gospel of reconciliation. The other, the message, of salvation is sent, and he hears and embraces it, and is heir to eternal life. Should the one become the partaker of glory, and the other be consigned to hopeless perdition? Is there no chance for his escape? Fortunately, our ancestors will have the opportunity of receiving and accepting these saving ordinances as we identify them and complete these sacred ordinances for them by proxy. We do for them what they cannot do for themselves. 
It is a very satisfying experience. In the great vision in Kirtland Temple, Elijah the prophet appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and committed the keys of temple work and the sealing power into Joseph Smith's hands. This filled Malachi's prophecy that Elijah would be sent to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers, lest the whole earth be smitten with a curse. So what does this mean? To turn our hearts to our fathers is to search out the names of our deceased ancestors and to perform the saving ordinances in the temple for them. This will forge a continual chain between us and our forebears, eventually all the way back to Father Adam and Sister Mother Eve. The heart of an 11-year-old boy was turned to his father during a family home evening when the children assembled personal books of remembrance. Young Jeff wanted to accompany his mother to the National Archives. She was afraid he might disturb the researchers there. But he persisted, and she relented, and she took him with her. Four hours into their research, he exclaimed, Mama, I've found Grandpa. Indeed, he had found his great-great-great-grandfather. However, it doesn't always work that way. In a letter to the Family History Department, someone wrote, We lost our grandmother. Would you please send us a copy? The Gospel of Jesus Christ teaches us that the celestial family organization will be one that is complete, that is, an organization linked from father and mother and children of one generation to the father and mother and children of the next generation, thus expanding and spreading down to the end of time. In tracing our family names, we often find them spelled differently depending upon the source. This was the case of a university student in Provo, Utah, who caught the vision of this linking of generations. He was walking through the library one evening and remembered hearing something of the Searing family tell about a town in New York State that had been named after an ancestor. So he decided to go look up the town he stumbled across a very old copy of a gazetteer and read about a man named Simon Searing who helped settle Long Island in the mid-1600s. Could Simon be his ancestor? He had to know. He began to research in earnest and traced his line back several generations, but still he needed to bridge the gap between the 1800s and the 1600s. Then a miracle occurred. He unexpectedly located a history of a Searing family. The families in the Searing book ended in the same generation he had reached in his own research. Not only was he able to connect many generations, but he also linked himself to the early settler, Simon Searing. Some who are interested in family history try to enhance their own image by linking up with prominent people. In my own experience, it has been quite different. 
I have been fascinated by learning of some of the unknown ordinary people whose records tell of historic lives. Arthur L. Bassett once said, Who among us wants to throw stones at their ancestors? I, for one, am intrigued by their battles, their victories as well as their defeats. I am fascinated by what may seem the most commonplace of lives because I have come to realize the excitement that is concealed in the commonplace. It is not likely that you will find horse thieves in your ancestor line. But if you do, it is important that their temple work be done because we believe in repentance for the dead also. <laughs> the dead who repent will be redeemed through obedience to the ordinances of the house of God. And after they have paid the penalty of their transgressions and are washed clean, receive a reward according to their works, for they are heirs of salvation. The process of finding our ancestors one by one can be challenging, but also exciting and rewarding. We often feel the spiritual guidance as we go to the sources which identify them. This is very spiritual work because we can expect help from the other side of the veil. We feel a pull from our relatives who are waiting for us to find them so their ordinance work can be done. This is a Christ-like service because we are doing something for them they cannot do for themselves. Many of you young men have already had a taste of temple work as you have participated in baptisms for the dead. When we go early to the temple, we often see young people dressed in white ready to take part in this satisfying experience before going to school. You are to be commended for your dedication in performing this vital work. In so doing, you have already felt the peace and serenity found within the walls of our temples. I testify that God is a just God, and He will not give privileges to us and withhold them from our forebears. But we will need to do the baptisms, the endowments, and the sealings for them by proxy here on earth in order for us and them to be leaked together in eternity and have part of the first resurrection. I further testify that the Lord directs and inspires President Hinckley as he leads us in this important work. May the peace that comes from faithful discharge of our priesthood duties ever be with us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. One of the remarkable evidences of the Restoration is the testimony of Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery regarding the manner in which the priesthood and its directing powers were returned to earth. In each case, priesthood and priesthood keys were restored by divine messengers who had held them in earlier times. John the Baptist brought back the Aaronic priesthood with the keys of repentance and baptism. Peter, James, and John not only restored the Melchizedek priesthood, but also the keys of the kingdom. Moses and Elijah returned with the gathering and sealing keys. 
The events describing the return of the priesthood are remarkable in that they conform precisely with the biblical pattern of priesthood restoration in earlier dispensations. For example, consider the restoration and transfer of priesthood powers during the Savior's time. Near the end of his ministry, Jesus promised Peter the keys of the kingdom, knowing that he, Jesus, would soon leave and that priesthood keys were needed by the apostles if they were to direct the work after his ascension. In order for them to receive the keys, Matthew records that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into a high mountain where he was transfigured before them, and Moses and Elijah appeared unto them. Shortly after this event, the Savior declared that the apostles now had the keys to direct the ministry. The prophet Joseph Smith states that the Savior, Moses, and Elias, or Elijah, gave the keys to Peter, James, and John on the mount when they were transfigured before him. The pattern of priesthood restoration described by Matthew is the same pattern followed in our dispensation. Apostles and prophets designated by the Lord to hold keys in earlier dispensations returned them to the earth as this dispensation began. In contrast, 19th-century ministers in the Palmyra environs, not understanding the great apostasy that had taken place, believed in an entirely different process for priesthood reception. They believed that the power to preach came through an inner calling to a priesthood of believers. They did not understand the necessity of receiving the priesthood from a person in authority by the laying on of hands. Also, they did not understand the purpose or necessity of priesthood keys. The priesthood is the power and authority of God delegated to man. Priesthood keys are the right to direct the use of that power. As has been mentioned tonight, the president of the Church holds the keys necessary for governing the entire Church. His counselors in the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles also hold the keys of the kingdom and operate under the President's direction. Stake presidents, bishops, temple, mission, and quorum presidents are given keys to guide the Church in their jurisdictions. Their counselors do not hold keys but receive delegated authority by calling and assignment. Priesthood and priesthood keys open the door to the blessings of the Atonement. Through the power of the priesthood, people are baptized for the remission of sins made possible by the Savior's great act of mercy. A holder of the Melchizedek priesthood may confer the Holy Ghost. Through the bestowal of the Holy Ghost, members are cleansed with fire, guided into truth, comforted, sanctified, and blessed in many ways as partakers of the fruits of the Atonement. The sealing authority may bind a man, a woman, and their children together forever, making possible exaltations in the world to come, again a blessing from the Savior. It is expected that worthy holders of the Melchizedek priesthood will use the power delegated to them to bless others starting with their own families. One of the great inheritances of the Restoration is that a father ordained the Melchizedek priesthood has the right to bless his wife and children when prompted and when a blessing is desired by them.
Many years ago, our family had an experience which left an indelible impression as to the importance and value and power of a father's blessing. The lessons learned may be of interest to you. When our oldest children were ready to begin formal schooling, Sister Bateman and I decided that a father's blessing would be given each child at the beginning of the school year. The family home evening preceding the start of school would be the occasion. The year our oldest son, Michael, entered the third grade holds special memories for us. During the preceding summer, he had participated in Little League Baseball. He loved the sport. When we gathered for family home evening just before the start of school, Michael announced that he did not need a blessing. He had completed his first season in Little League, and blessings were for younger children. Sister Bateman and I were stunned. We encouraged him, suggesting that a blessing would help him with his schoolwork. It would be a protection to him. It would help him in his relations with his brothers, sisters, and friends. Our encouragement, along with some coaxing, failed. He was too old. Believing in the principle of agency, we were not about to force a blessing on an eight-year-old. All of the children except Michael received a blessing that year. The school year proceeded normally. Michael and the other children did well in school, and the family enjoyed their associations together. Then the following May arrived, and it was time for Little League Baseball to begin. Following the last day of school, Michael's coach called a team practice. Michael's anticipation could not have been greater. His dream was about to be realized. He was to be the starting catcher. The baseball diamond was only a few blocks from her home. The boys and the coach walked to the baseball field, crossing a busy highway. Following the practice, the boys and coach started for home. Michael and a friend ran on ahead of the coach and the other boys. As the two little boys approached the busy highway, Michael failed to look and darted in front of a car driven by a 16-year-old boy out for his first drive. Can you imagine the fear that must have struck the young man's heart? He slammed on the brakes and swerved in an attempt to miss the boy. Unfortunately, the side of the front fender and bumper hit Michael and threw him down the highway. A short time later, Sister Bateman and I received a telephone call from the police. Michael, in critical condition, was in an ambulance on his way to the hospital. It was important that we hurry. Before leaving, I called a friend and asked him to meet us at the hospital and assist in giving a blessing. The 20-minute drive was the longest of our lives. We prayed fervently for the life of our son and to know the will of the Lord. As we parked the car by the door of the emergency room, we saw a policeman exiting with a young man who was crying. The policeman recognized us and introduced the young man as the driver of the car. We knew enough of the story to put our arms around him and tell him that we knew it was not his fault. We then entered the hospital to find Michael. As we entered the emergency room, the doctors and nurses were working feverishly attending to his needs. My friend had arrived, and we asked if it would be possible to have two or three minutes alone with him. My priesthood brother anointed, and I sealed. As I laid my hands upon Michael's head, a feeling of comfort and peace came over me. Words flowed and promises were made. He was then rushed to the operating room.
For the next four weeks, Michael lay in a hospital bed with his head bandaged and his leg in traction. Each Wednesday, his Little League teammates would visit him after the game and give him a report. Each Wednesday, tears would well up in Michael's eyes, run down his cheeks as the boys relived the game. After four weeks, Michael in traction, Michael was put in a body cast from his chest to his toes. On two or three occasions, we took him to a game to watch his friends play. Another four weeks passed, and the body cast was replaced with a cast from his hip to his toes. Two days before school was to begin, the final cast was removed. As the family gathered the next night for school blessings, is there any wonder as to who wanted the first one? A nine-year-old boy, a little older and a lot wiser, was first in line. Over the years, our children have come to understand that accidents are not always prevented by priesthood blessings, but they also know that more than one type of protection is available through the priesthood. Today, our grandchildren are the recipients of priesthood blessings. The tradition is in the second and third generation. We believe that this practice, like the family, will prevail through the eternities. I am so grateful for a 14-year-old boy, Joseph Smith, who entered a grove of trees asking to know which church is right. I will be eternally grateful for the answer he received and the subsequent restoration of the priesthood and its keys through John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John, and other holy messengers. May we use this great power to bless all of God's children, beginning with our own families, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I hold in my hand a copy of a Sunday School manual titled Leaders of the Scriptures, which was first printed in 1947. The authors were Marion G. Merkley and one Gordon B. Hinckley. Fifty-six years ago, this manual has been in my home for many years and is part of the motivation for this talk tonight. One of the most significant events of the Restoration is that of the Aaronic Priesthood in May of 1829. John the Baptist appeared to the prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Joseph recounts, quote, While we were thus employed, praying and calling upon the Lord, a messenger from heaven descended in a cloud of light, and having laid his hands upon us, he ordained us, saying, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of the Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron, which holds the keys of the ministering of angels, and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. We have in this priesthood session of general conference tens of thousands of young men who hold the Aaronic priesthood and who belong to deacons, teachers, and priest quorums all over the world. Each quorum is headed by a quorum presidency, including a president who holds keys to lead the individual quorum. <clears throat> Many of us might consider these youthful leaders to be too young to hold these important responsible positions. Let's consider a few examples of, of what youth really can do. First, the prophet Jeremiah, quote, then, the Lord, then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee, I knew thee, and before thou comest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, 
for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Now, if the Lord desired, couldn't he also put words in the mouth of a 13-year-old deacon's quorum president who holds the keys of the ministering of angels? Another young man, Timothy, was a missionary companion to the Apostle Paul. The epistles from Paul to Timothy are tributes of the great faith and testimony of this very young man. Let me read a few extracts from those epistles. First quote, Wherefore, stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. And Christ has saved us and called us with an holy calling. And thirdly, and that from a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise. As with Timothy, wouldn't a 14-year-old teacher's born present also be entitled to a gift of God when he is set apart by the bishop? Isn't the calling of a teacher's born president also an holy calling? And can a 16-year-old priest be wise? The scriptures give us a resounding yes. One of the greatest examples of a very young man making a contribution of monumental significance is that of Mormon. Let's read just part of his account. And now I, Mormon, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard, and call it the Book of Mormon. And about the time that Amaron hid up the records unto the, to the Lord, he came unto me, saying, I being about ten years of age, ten years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of, my, of the learning of my people. And Amaron said unto me, I perceive <clears throat> that thou art a sober child, and art quick to observe. One day ye shall take the place of Nephi unto yourself, and the remainder shall ye leave in the place where they are. And ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that ye have observed concerning this people. And I, notwithstanding being young, was large in stature. Therefore the people of Nephi appointed me that I should be their leader, or the leader of their armies. And so it came to pass that in my sixteenth year I did go forth at the head of an army of the Nephites. What a chronology of events in a young life! He began preparing for his prophetic calling at age ten, receiving knowledge of the ancient sacred records. By appointment of the people of Nephi, he became the head of the Nephite armies at age sixteen. In June of the year I was twelve years old, I was in injured in a horse accident while delivering newspapers in my old hometown of Randolph. I was placed in a wheelchair for six months until I first walked on Christmas Day that year. I remember <clears throat> the members of my deacon quorum presidency coming to my home to visit me. Del Rex, Doug McKinnon, and others who were 13-year-old leaders in the deacon's quorum presidency. They seemed to understand their responsibility to me as a member of their quorum. I recently was standing at the luggage retrieval at the Salt Lake International Airport when a woman, woman came to me and asked my name. I recognized her as a former Southridge High classmate from years ago. She changed since I last seen her. You all know how I feel about the old dreaded high school reunion. She had added a few gray hairs and a few wrinkles. 
Of course, I hadn't changed. <laughs> it was obvious that she was meeting her missionary child who was returning from a mission. It surprised me. While she was yet in school, her family, who were not members of the Church, had moved into our small community. Her name was Alice Gomez. She was about the same age as me and my friends. I remembered that she was friendly and always polite, but that she never did attend any of our meetings. I said to her, Alice, tell me your story. You are obviously now an active member of the Church, but never joined while we were going to school. Her answer was condemning. No one ever asked me. Wow! Our quorum really dropped the ball on that one. Recently reported to me of a young priest quorum in Jamaica who decided they would help the missionaries with their work. So this quorum of young men went knocking on doors trying to find appointments for the missionaries. They soon found more referrals than the missionaries could handle. A priest quorum in Kaysville, Utah, decided they would not lose one member of their quorum. The whole quorum would go to a less active member's home and have their Sunday lesson sitting around the less active boy's bed. Soon, that young man joined his quorum in taking the Sunday school lesson to another home. As of the year 2003, there are more than 26,000 wards and branches in the Church, with approximately 78,000 deacons, teachers, and priest quorums. Talk about an army. The contribution that the quorums of the Aaronic Priesthood could make to the work of converting, retaining, and activating other members of their quorums is enormous. If a 16-year-old Mormon can be the commanding officer of a large military army, and if Jeremiah as a child could have words put in his mouth by the Almighty God, and if Timothy could be wise as he was, then each young man within the sound of my voice can rise to the challenge of his quorum responsibilities. The responsibilities of the Aaronic Priesthood quorums are no less important than the responsibilities of elders' quorums or high priest groups. Remember, they hold, quote, the keys of the ministering of angels. We need young men to stand up in their calling, knowing of their ordained right to act in the office to which they are appointed. I testify that these Aaronic Priesthood quorums hold the holy priesthood of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.